flat is a state of mind. Get to know the people, science, and stories that make the Kansas outdoors more than flyover country. This is Flatlander Podcast, presented by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. What I see on my dirt is undescribable as the Bible. Welcome back, Flatlanders. It's spring in the great state of Kansas. Uh, and probably everywhere else in the Northern Hemisphere, I guess. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Lindsay Ryan. <laughs> and hey, I'm Laura Mendenhall. Today, we're diving into the unloved, often hated, and feared with a guest who loves them. Today, we're chatting about snakes with Dexter Martis. Dexter, could you tell us a bit about yourself? What would you like our listeners to know about you? Um, hi, everybody. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm Dexter Martis. Um, I'm the biological field station manager at Wichita State University, um, which basically just means that, um, I'm responsible for all of the properties that we use as outdoor laboratories and classrooms, um, for conservation and for education. Um, and I'm also, uh, on the executive council of the Kansas Herpetological Society, um, and herpetology is basically the study of amphibians and reptiles, which of course snakes are. Um, so that's kind of what I do and who I am. Um, I've always been interested in snakes. I grew up in Southwest Missouri, um, near Branson and spent a lot of time out looking underneath rocks and logs and, and anything else that was on the ground, um, trying to catch little snakes and lizards and stuff. Um, so it's always been something that has really interested me. I've just always thought they were kind of cool. Dexter, I'm really glad you defined herpetological for us because I think that that term can be confusing to people. And what can you explain, like, if you're going to go out looking for snakes, flipping rocks, whatever, what do you call that, like, colloquially? Um, most people just call it herping. Uh, okay. usually when I'm out doing it, I'm also like equally giddy about finding beetles and, and other random stuff, moss. Um, so I just broadly use the term fielding, um, cause I'm out in the field playing around or, or doing research or whatever. Um, but typically, you know, most people call the search of snakes and salamanders and whatnot, um, just perfect. Okay, cool. And I feel like the three of us many moons ago went herping together on the Air Force Base, right? And we were we were looking for snakes. We were going to do some swabbing for snake fungal disease. Do you guys remember that? Oh, yeah. It was so fun. Yeah. It was yes. super cool. And we, I think we documented the first decays. I think you found it, Lindsay. I think I did, too. Brown. Yeah. Or I, or I, so I picked cool. him up. <laughs> yeah. It's a really cute little snake, the de decays brown snake, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's actually yes. the species of, of snake that I first fell in love with that really got me excited about snakes because they're small. They're these cute little nondescript bug-eyed. Oh, I just, they're just so cute. <laughs> For me, it was ring necks. Yes. I, I love a cute little ring neck with their yeah. bright orange ring. I agree. They're, they're super yeah. pretty. Yeah. Okay. They're easy to find. They Yeah, they really are. I was on a walk out here in Pratt, Kansas with a couple of coworkers and right there in the middle of the path, I almost stepped on a ring neck. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it was just randomly. 
Um, so Dexter, since we're on the topic of different snakes that are found in Kansas, how many species of snakes are actually in the state and how many of those are venomous? Um, so Kansas, uh, has right around, um, 100 species of herpetofauna in total. So all of, all of the amphibians and reptiles and 42 of those are snakes. Um, so the vast majority of all amphibians and reptiles in the state, um, per, per family unit is, um, is a snake. And five of those, five by my count, um, which has a little bit of an opinion um, kind of swirled into it, are venomous. Um, and that opinion is just that I'm including Western diamondback rattlesnakes, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about more later. Um, but I'm excluding the snake that people think is most common in the state, the cottonmouth, um, which I think also is a story that we'll get into more later. Um, so five to six venomous, depending on how your um your own personal opinions swirl but that's that's what i'm choosing to say can you can you go through the five venomous so you said western diamondback um prairie rattlesnake which is common throughout about the western half maybe a little little more than a third of the state um the uh, western massasauga rattlesnake, um, which is a small, um, pretty nondescript rattlesnake found um, patchily throughout the entire state um, from the east all the way to the west. Um, there are definitely spots that they aren't found, um, but they're, they're kind of the most widely distributed throughout the state. There's also the timber rattlesnake, um, which is a species in need of conservation in the eastern third of the state. Um, and then uh, the copperhead, which is also found throughout the eastern third of the state in, in the wooded areas. Okay. Sorry, I was ticking things off of my head as you were going through that. I had no idea that the Massasauga could be found like throughout the state, and my mind is just reeling a little bit from that. So I appreciate that new found knowledge that I have and my noggin that's just rattling around in there. Um, spe speaking of rattlers, uh, are all of them native to Kansas? Are there any rattlesnakes or venomous snakes that aren't native to Kansas? So yeah, the, the Western Diamondback rattlesnake that we mentioned, there's a couple of instances down um, southwest of Medicine Lodge, right along the Oklahoma border, where we've had encounters, and I say we just as a general people in Kansas, where we've had encounters with Western Diamondbacks and that we think is is just naturally like the occasional little vagrant took a took a slither up from Oklahoma sort of thing. Um, but there is a, a they are pretty commonly found at Canopolis um, Reservoir, uh, Canopolis State Park on the north end of the park due to an introduction back in the, the early 1990s. And I I don't know the whole story precisely, but the kind of the, the rumor mill on that that I've heard before has been that somebody moved up into into the area from further south where these snakes were common, and they recognized that the geology around Canopolis kind of reminded them of home, and they missed being able to go out to see rattlesnakes, maybe. Um, participating in rattlesnake roundups. And so they they released several of them into the park. They've been seen off and on 
from 1994, I think, up until now. Um, there was a gap from the early 2000s into 2016 um, where they weren't seen, but now they're they're pretty easily seen if you know where to look. And that and the others are are just naturally occurring within the state. And are any of the five venomous associated with water? Like, would you find them in the water? Of the the ones that are on my list, no, no. I mean, they all can be in the water. Um, you know, they can all swim, and of course, they have to drink. And it's not uncommon to see. It's I should say it's not unheard of to see um, a rattlesnake swimming um, or a copperhead swimming, but they don't stick near water like what a cottonmouth would if we had them reliably within the state. And I do need to go back and offer a bit of a correction from a couple of moments ago. So the Massasagas are found east to west, but they only go west past a line between Coldwater and Hayes along the Arkansas River Valley. Um, there's a, a couple of records that they were seen there. So they're, they're probably sparsely found in some lowland areas that are a little bit more moist throughout the west but they're not commonly found in the um or they're not found in the, like the grassy uplands i was mistaken okay. a little bit on that so they're at least found in like most of the state right yeah yeah if okay. you basically draw a line north south from you know cold water through kiowa county and larned up through hayes they're they're pretty solidly found in most of the areas east of there so the eastern two-thirds of the state Cool. Okay. I've, I have not seen a Massasauga yet. It is on my list. Dexter, please take me and help me find one. <laughs> All right. They're easy to get just south of where you live in Pratt. <gasps> oh, perfect. Okay. Um, Dexter, you briefly mentioned cottonmouths. Can we go back to that and talk a little bit about them? Do we have them in the state? Um, are there active populations. Let's talk a little bit about cottonmouths since that's the one that everybody sees every time they're by a body of water. <laughs> yes, everybody does see them, it seems like. They're easily the most commonly reported snake in the state, I think, copperheads being right up there with them, uh, which also is largely due to misidentification. Throughout the last 115 or so, 120 years of herpetology within Kansas, only two specimens of cottonmouths have been seen that can be confirmed to have been in the state and not released by somebody. And both of those were in 1991, um, way down in the southeastern corner in Cherokee County, just a few miles from the Missouri border. They were both in the fall of 91 and they were they were males. It's unlikely that they, they came in. For a long time, people thought that maybe they washed in since the stream that they were on would be downstream from something in Missouri. Um, but it's unlikely there was no large flooding near there temporally um, for the last couple of years. And but but further than that is just kind of weird because they've not really been seen in those same river drainages in Missouri. That doesn't mean that they're not there. It just probably means that their populations are relatively small and secretive. And we have absolutely no evidence of a reproducing population within the state. Like I said, those are the only two that's ever been seen that we know weren't released by somebody. Well, and I think it's important to know. So we talk about ecoregions on this podcast and the location you said in Southeast Cherokee County is its own unique ecoregion in Kansas. Um, it's the Ozark Plateau. So 
it makes sense that you wouldn't expect to see them sort of anywhere else because they're adapted probably to that ecosystem. Is that fair to say? I mean, they do come further west and are even pretty common in northeastern Oklahoma. Which that ecoregion does extend down. So the Ozark but Plateau goes through even, Oklahoma, Missouri. Even outside the Ozarks, um, they're, okay. they're pretty common. And, and there's some that have been found pretty close to the Kansas border, um, south of south of Independence, Coffeeville, that area. And actually the Caney River there just south of Coffeeville um, in Montgomery County is the most likely place. If you look at, at where they approach the state from Oklahoma or from Missouri or anything, it's the most likely place in the state where they could be in a couple of those permanent bodies of water, little streams and stuff. Um, but that's the really important thing. They need a permanent body of water, usually that's connected like streams and stuff, because they can go on a, a bit of a, a crawl about and, and find new ponds and stuff. But seeing them in ponds isn't all that common because they really like water. And so they don't travel very far from it. Definitely not far enough to like find you know, a random cattle pond in the southern Flint Hills or something like that. So if if cottonmouths are really kind of restricted to those areas, um, or at least the observations suggest as much, mm-hmm. what are people, because like Lindsay alluded to, everyone's reporting cottonmouths all over the state. So what are people actually seeing? You know, Kansas has several species, seven or eight species throughout the state, at least, that are, are commonly associated with water, are usually found nearby. Um, there's three different species of water snakes, which can be really defensive and are really prone to biting because they get nervous. Like if you catch them or anything like that, they're also really curious. They love trying to get fish off of people's poles because they're adapted to eat like sick and dead and injured fish. And so that the struggling of, of a fish on a fishing pole um, is enough to, to make snakes think that it's something they can eat. Um, so a lot of times they'll come up trying to investigate fishermen and stuff. And then people think that, you know, a cottonmouth's coming after them. Um, but it's just a, a harmless water sink that's curious because it thinks it might be able to get some food. Um, we also have Graham's crayfish snake and, um, garter snakes and ribbon snakes that are also really commonly found around water. And so those, for the most part, I think are the ones that are usually misidentified. But of course, every snake has to drink. So if you just stumble upon a, a king snake, uh, like a speckled king snake or a western rat snake that's that's really dark in color or something like that, that's getting a drink from a stream, then you know it's also likely to be called a cottonmouth. Okay, so I'm really excited you mentioned the thing about the three to four species of water snakes are attracted to dead or dying or injured fish, Mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of times as a biologist, we get questions about how to do good pond management to have a good uh, fishery in your little pond. And so you would want to have water snakes, right? To kind of like thin out these sick and injured or dying fish so you get a stronger bass population or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And of course, I mean, these fish aren't big enough to eat adult bass or anything. But the wee ones... Right, right. But they definitely yeah. will uh, select out the slower, the, the ones that are, are more likely to be sick um, or injured. Uh, they basically act like vultures in a lot of the way of they just keep everything, they keep everything healthy, uh, you know, because obviously if you have sick and dying fish that are in the pond, they're going to spread that, that illness to other fish. But I mean, think about it. Snakes, don't have any arms, even us humans with arms, it's really hard to grab a fish out of the water. And so, <laughs> and so they're like not super well suited to just swimming up and 
grabbing a nice bluegill that's healthy because the bluegill is just going to kind of giggle at them and then flounce away. And and so yeah, they they really good. They are really good. Sorry, at providing uh, that really critical ecosystem service of kind of culling the weak and the sick to make everybody healthier and stronger. And of course, like if you are a, a healthy fish that just naturally gets caught, obviously you weren't quick enough or strong enough to survive. And so, you know, in theory, they could be kind of selecting out those those little bit weaker genes. Um, I have no idea that anybody's ever looked at the statistics on that to, to, to know whether that's actual science or just, you know, some some old wives tale but, but yeah so yeah your point was absolutely correct they're they're critical for for fisheries health in the sense that they make everybody be the the best and strongest fish that they can be so listeners take take note leave your snakes in your ponds and your your lakes because they're going to help your your fish and they're not cotton mouths and they're not cottonmouths. <laughs> Unless you're in maybe Cherokee County or you're a listener from Oklahoma okay so I went on a kayaking trip um, down by New Orleans and I was actively looking for cotton mouths and I was super excited every time I would see a black snake like in the reeds or on the bank or whatever and some of the other fellow kayakers were telling me that I should not go near them because if I get too close they will chase after me and um, <laughs> can we just bust that myth wide open Are I mean are they going to chase after people and Let's go beyond cotton mouths. Will any snake chase after a person? As a general rule, no. There are a couple of situations. So, like, I'm thinking of coach whip snakes, which are large, visual, kind of attuned, intelligent snakes um, throughout southern Kansas. Adult male cotton mouths during the breeding season, um, I think I, I've, I've read a report to where, like, they'll get so amped up all on the breeding hormones that they will act a little aggressive towards humans. They're of course they're harmless. They can't do anything. So like at best they're gonna like headbutt your leg or something. That's the only instance I can think of where that where you may actually be chased by a snake. And I'm not Wait, even sure. Did you mean coach whip? Yeah, what did I say? Okay, I think you said cotton mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, they're oh, not gosh. gonna just boop you. <laughs> yeah. Well actually they will, but that's also another story. Oh um, they'll boop you? Okay. Yeah. Um <laughs> but okay, he meant coach whip. The yes. coach whip may chase after you and it just adult male coach you. whips may may get all hopped up on the breeding hormones and 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 you know come at you just because it's looking for a you know a fight. But again, they're harmless and otherwise snakes may come at you, may move towards you because like with the water snakes, you know, they, they sense they're, they're not particularly afraid of you for whatever reason. Maybe they're just used to being, they're used to you being around your pond, but they, they feel like, Hey, maybe I can come up and get some fish or, or frogs or whatever else. Or another reason snakes can actively move at you is they're trying to hide and you're between them and where they know is a safe spot. So they know like the habitats that they hang out in pretty well. They have a pretty good map in their mind. Yeah. They, they could be moving towards you because you're incidentally in front of their their hidey hole or because like if you're wearing big thick hiking boots that actually have a little bit of gap between the heel and the the rest of the sole they could even see that and say and think hey that's a hole that i can bolt into and or they're just trying to like they see your shadow and yeah so so they can come at you they can move towards you 
while trying to get away just because they're trying to get to a spot that they either think or know is safe or you know in the case of water snakes because they they want the fish that you also want so those are kind of the two things that i think people oftentimes confuse with being chased and i mean i've had water snakes i don't fish all that much um but i've had water snakes move up to me just because they're curious they're you know yeah they're curious they like looking at stuff and learning and they usually keep their distance but sometimes they don't Especially like if you're canoeing or something, they're just like, hey, what's this weird two-legged, you know, animal thing that's on this weird plastic log moving through it? I want to check it out. Or, hey, I can sun on that log. And so that's why they tried to get into your kayaks or something. So I think it helps me. And I, I guess I'm not afraid of snakes, so I have a bias here. But everything you just described sounds like a, a sweet little puppy. Scared, confused, looking for a place to hide or a meal because they're hungry. So it's helpful to sort of reorient the snake's behavior. And I know I'm sort of anthropomorphizing, although using puppies. So I don't know what you call that, but. Um, Doggopomorphizing. <laughs> yeah, dog. Painted pomorphizing. Yeah, but it helps to sort of just reorient that behavior in your mind. They're not chasing you. There's no evil intent. They're scared and confused and maybe lonely. <laughs> I love, I love that so much. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. So since we've been talking a lot about venomous snakes, um, what can people do to avoid getting bit by a venomous snake? Um, I know that there are most of the time it's purely accidental. Someone steps on them or they're walking around and they don't have long pants on. Um what can people do to avoid accidentally getting bitten? Yeah, like you said, wearing long pants whenever you're out i know uh, i especially hate wearing long pants walk like hiking in kansas in the summer but yeah doing that wearing good shoes especially closed-toed shoes really is helpful so the main things to remember whenever you're concerned about being bitten by a snake the highest likelihood of getting bitten by a snake is on your hands like somebody's trying to catch it or or dink around with it um somehow and it's oftentimes more than 50% of the time, it is a, a youngish, so between like 17 and 44 years old, white male who is, you know, trying to be brave or just being reckless. And, you know, about 35 to 40% of the time, there's alcohol involved. The majority of snake bites in the United States are from people, usually young white men, trying to catch the snake and then they get bit because they put themselves within that snake's strike zone. I mean, if you're a snake from your, a snake's perspective, you want to bite as kind of a last resort. If you're really, really nervous and afraid that you might, you know, be attacked or, or predated upon, uh, because what you're doing is you're just slamming your face into somebody else at, or something else, you know, at, at a speed that's quicker than what humans can even see with your mouth open, hoping that you don't get teeth stuck in them and like ripping out some of your teeth. And beyond that, venom is really expensive to produce metabolically. So they don't want to, they don't want to have to bite and inject venom or anything like that because it's costly and dangerous for them. So again, you know, most of the time snake bites are, are, you know, those stats that I listed off a lot of, and, and so the next most common types of bite or locations of bites are on the feet below the ankles. So, you know, you're walking along and you accidentally step on something on, you know, a, a trail or just out in the middle of nowhere and they just automatically sling 
back and, and bite whatever's causing the pressure on their body. So yeah, closed-toed shoes, especially, you know, if they're they're kind of ankle height or higher boots and wearing jeans. So the thickness of denim and kind of how robust it is as a fiber helps to mitigate that sort of, uh, helps to penetrate, goodness gracious, helps to mitigate the penetration of the fangs um, into you. Because, you know, again, they're not trying to bite to kill or anything. They're trying to say, hey, leave me alone. So as soon as they feel that contact, especially with something as robust as denim, that's not tightly fitting next to your skin, they're like, okay, cool, job's done. I'm, I'm going to let go. And so oftentimes that pressure doesn't carry through and result in, in an injection of, of venom. And, you know, there was even a report several, several years ago, I think, that I saw that said vending machines cause more people deaths in the United States every year than snake bites do. So it's far more dangerous to, to try to, like, bump a vending machine to get that bag of chips out that's caught than it is to <laughs> than it is to go hiking in venom snake country. Yeah, and when you mentioned the thickness of the jeans, you're talking about loose fitting jeans and not skinny jeans, right? Right. Yeah, skinny jeans. I mean, again, there's still a little bit of that thickness there, um, but oftentimes those, since they're stretchier, are thinner. Uh, but again, it's right next to your skin. So if the things do go through the material, they also are going into your skin. Um, so it's important whenever you're hiking and you're being snake conscious to wear loose fitting pants, pant legs, uh, just because, yeah, it can sometimes fake the snake out, so to speak, into thinking that, you know, their bite was successful. I believe you earlier said robust denim, which I love. I'm, right. I'm going to use that now when I shop. <laughs> you know, like, like Wranglers and, and stuff that, that's made for being out doing farm work or, or outside, not just, yeah, skinny jeans and stuff like that you, to, to look nice at dinner. Although I don't know if skinny jeans actually look nice at dinner. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> pair it with a blazer and you're good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, okay, I have neither of those articles of clothing. <laughs> you got to get a power blazer. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So in terms of avoidance of getting of getting bitten. So Lindsay and I, through our work with Kansas Wildlife Federation, we do a lot of promoting of this certified wildlife habitat program, wherein people can sort of convert their yards to, back to good habitat. And so part of that is providing like um, native plants and cover for young. And so we often get the question, okay, I'm good with providing food and cover for birds and pollinators, but I don't want snakes in my yard. Um, so I wonder if you could speak to, you know, if you, if a person puts in native plants and like a little pond or a bird feeder, or a bird bath, are they going to get copperheads? Absolutely not. If they're west of the Flint Hills, because copperheads aren't found there. But just to answer your question, if you're in the Flint Hills or east, possibly, but it... So these snakes are are super shy, and again, they don't want to slam their face into your leg at a third of the se speed of light or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> that's an exaggeration, but yeah, they <laughs> they don't they don't want to do that. Um, it can't be any more comfortable for them than it is for us. And so the main things is is snakes really need three things throughout most of the year for um, for life. They need, of course, food. Uh, which for copperheads usually is rodents, but also lizards and frogs and cicadas. They need water. So a pond that you're putting in uh, or any like tiny little divot. They also can can just, you know, 
slurp heavy dew off of the grass. So not having a pond isn't going to preclude snakes. But most importantly, they need shelter. And so, yeah, keeping, especially right around the house, keeping um, vegetation and and clutter, junk, not junk necessarily, but like yard ornaments, um, just random pieces of, of lumber or rock or, or whatever that provides some sort of safety place for them to hide under. Not having that around your house helps to not have them right around your house, but it's definitely a weird balance when you're trying to advocate for, for wildlife habitat and native yards, but preclude you know the possibility of a venomous snake being there. I don't I really... Think- Go ahead. Yeah, like not having a brush pile. Yeah. I mean, that's a good start. Yeah. Don't have a brush pile. So like you can plant native plants and have a little pond um, and bird feeders and stuff. Like birds aren't going to really influence the the presence of copperheads very often. So you can have all of that, but as long as you keep it tidy and don't really have spaces for them to hide, they're not going to feel very comfortable chilling in your yard. Okay, and I use Copperhead as an example because I do live in the Flint Hills and we do have Copperheads here. Mm-hmm. Um, but would could the same be said for any of the other venomous snakes you mentioned? Just kind of keep it clean. You can still use native native plants. Maybe don't have a brush pile up against your house. Yeah, absolutely. It's okay. It, it, it works for for all of them. Of course, I think you know prairie rattlesnakes and timber rattlesnakes aren't as big of an issue most of the time unless you live out in the country just because they're automatically more shy around people and it's harder for them to hide since they're larger than copperheads are but yeah it definitely you know keeping things tidy and even making sure like your bird seed is secure so that rodents can't get into it so a lot of these things mostly eat rodents and so basically doing stuff to mitigate all of the mice and rats that you might have around your place. We'll make sure that, you know, there's no food there. And if it's tidy, there's, there's little or no shelter. They don't really have a reason to hang out there. So you can still do a lot of stuff that provides ecosystem services to pollinators and birds um, and even frogs and stuff like that without providing good preferable habitat to venomous snakes. That's yeah. great advice. Yeah, it is really good advice. And I'm really glad that you asked that, Laura. Um, which brings me to another question that I have. Um, so a lot of people are justly afraid of getting bit. I'm afraid of getting bit. Um, so if, if someone does get bit, what should they do? What should they not do? The age-old wives' tale of sucking out the poison or cutting it out with a knife or... I don't know. What should someone do or not do if they get bit by a venomous snake or they think they get bit by a venomous snake? Right. They should absolutely not do the things that you just said. Um, (laughs) So um, the two most important first aid items for a a snake bite, a venomous snake bite throughout all of North America, um, because all of the rattlesnakes and copperheads and cottonmouths and everything have very similar venoms for the most part. And so they're all treated with the same anti-venom. The two most important items for first aid are cell phone and keys. Get medical attention if you can and be able to drive to, you know, if you're out in the middle of nowhere, like if you need to drive to meet an ambulance or, or you know, God forbid, a, a helicopter. But yeah, those two things are the most important is getting 
professional medical attention as fast as possible. You know, tourniquets don't really work since all of the most of the venoms in the United States um, attack cells and blood. So using a tourniquet to to hold venom into like an extremity basically is just going to concentrate the effect on that extremity and make things a lot worse. Yeah, again, sucking out the poison. I mean, so, yeah, sucking out a poison, as a lot of people would say, um, doesn't really work because it gets into the, the system so quickly that you can't get any any really back out. Plus, on the off chance you do succeed, if there's any sort of tiny open wounds in your mouth or anything like that, you're just going to envenomate yourself. You know, and I, you know, a lot of people talk about like, oh, drinking some whiskey or putting some whiskey on it. Um, those, of course, don't help either. Um, don't cut open the area. Again, just get professional medical attention as quickly as possible. As a general rule, it's certainly not uh, an absolute law, but as a general rule, the venomous snakes that we have in Kansas aren't so dangerous that they'll kill you right away if you don't get medical attention. So like you have time. It'll be, it'll probably be painful. You may have some long lasting, uh, you know, like damage on your finger or your arm if you get bit there. But for the most part, it's not going to be a horrible, horrible, probably lethal experience, especially if you get um, medical attention quickly. So don't waste time on the other stuff. Try to stay calm. Keep your heart rate down as much as you can, which sounds really ridiculous to suggest but yeah staying calm so that you don't pump the venom throughout the entirety of your body as quickly as possible and flood your kidneys with it and everything else that would be bad and is it safe to assume that any hospital in kansas is going to have what they need to treat you like i said the same anti-venom is needed for all of the species so there's a really good likelihood that they'll have at least a little bit on hand or it will be really quick to, to, you know, as soon as you make that, that 911 call and, you know, they know that they have a venomous snake bite coming in, they can look to see where you need to be directed or where they need to send anti-venom to, like on a helicopter really quickly. So it should be, it should be pretty easy to get the, the treatment that you need pretty quickly. There was something else I was going to say, but I cannot remember. Oh, do not try to catch the snake. Um, like I said, the same treatment is there regardless of the species. So there's absolutely no reason to try to catch the snake. A lot of people think like, oh, the doctors won't know how to treat this unless I take the snake in and they can ID it. Doctors aren't any better at IDing snakes than you are 90% of the time. Because <laughs> um, it's, it's not their area of specialty. They have more important things to do, like, you know, saving lives. Yes, so taking that only is also going to get you bit either again, or if you're a bystander, it's, you're, you're going to be a second envenomation. You're also taking a venomous snake into a hospital where people aren't trained to handle them. <laughs> um, so yeah, leave them where they're at and just go, just go to the hospital uh, and get treatment. So there is a, a Facebook page. Um, I think that's simply named the National... Um, snake bite snake bite national snake bite support is a facebook group um, where basically people can go and say hey i was bitten here on my body here in the country by probably this species uh, here's my symptoms and really the only people that talk on there are like the three or four doctors in the country that are are fully certified 
um, and, and professional treaters of snake bites. And so they can then get in contact with the local physicians to discuss treatments and say, hey, no, research says you don't want to do a fasciotomy because it just causes more tissue damage than the pressure would, et cetera. Um, so, so that's a really great resource too, is getting advice from there. They can talk, they can talk with your actual doctors to make sure that you get the the best treatment as quickly as possible. Okay. Quick, quick tangent here. Since you mentioned Facebook, <laughs> what, what is the other, there's a, is it KHS that has the Kansas herp? Facebook group where you can post a, a photo of a snake or whatever to get an identification? Yeah. Um, so there is the Kansas Herpetological Society Facebook group that, that you can go and you can share photos and say, hey, I found this near my home. I need to know what it is. Of course, nobody there is qualified to deal with snake bites, but we can do everything else to help you as far as like, you know, look at the trying to clean up your home around your home to keep these things from being there. Or that's a really cool harmless decays brown snake it's not a baby copperhead you can keep it around and they'll eat like slugs on your flower beds and stuff so yeah you absolutely can use that as a resource we that's why we have it so yeah very good question thank you yeah i like it when facebook and social media can be useful like that and so if you find yourself just doom scrolling through your news feed just unfollow everything except for the two things dexter said and maybe like a bird group or <laughs> there's a good kansas um native, native plant, plant society yeah and then you just passively absorb all this knowledge when you're scrolling through that's exactly what i did laura and being on social media is 90 percent more enjoyable yes agreed and you're smarter yes i'm so smart <laughs> <laughs> can confirm <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, okay, so while we're on the subject of people getting bit, um, or we're on the subject, I suppose, can we talk about the difference between something being venomous and something being poisonous? I know that's a pet peeve for a lot of people, um, and I feel like it would be good knowledge to share with the public. So scientifically speaking, most of the time, uh, or not most of the time, a uh, a poison is a toxic compound whose proteins are absorbed, uh, so whose dangerous molecules and whatnot can be absorbed through like mucous membranes like your eyes or your skin in, in certain situations or if you ingest it like, uh, and it can be absorbed through your mouth. So like, you know, toxic frogs, if you lick them, that would be a poison. You know, it's the same as getting food poisoning. You have to like ingest it or or somehow absorb it. And it has a different chemical makeup than what venoms do. So venoms um, are something that can't move through those those barriers. So they have to be injected into the body via, via like a, a bee or a scorpion sting or, or a bite. Or, I mean, it can just get into an open wound. Like I mentioned earlier, if you're trying to, to suck the venom out of somebody that, that was bitten by a snake, like if you have open sores in your mouth or a little tear in your gums or anything, excuse me, or anything like that. So, so yeah, those are kind of the main differences um, between those is if you bite it and you get sick, it's poisonous. If it bites you and you get sick, it's venomous. I love that saying. <laughs> yeah, that's really handy. So I'm thinking, okay, so po don't, don't lick frogs. Don't eat those bad mushrooms. Those would be poisonous. Correct. Okay, good. And you said anti-venom, right? We're not doing the old Frenchie anti-venom or whatever. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and that's a long convoluted story that because I really love the roots of, of words and how language evolves. Recently, when I was looking into it, I, I went into a deep dive. But yeah, so long story short, part of the United States, or not even part, but just, you know, a small percentage of people in the U.S. still use the phrase anti-venine, which is, yeah, based off of an old French serum um, that was supposed to treat snake bites. But most of the world uses anti-venom uh, with no hyphen in it or no dash. Um, I'm from Kansas. I don't know the difference between those two words. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and so, it, but it's really cool. A long, for a long time ago when it was first invented, um, anti-venom had the dash in it between anti and venom. And then right around World War II, the dash just kind of fell out because people were trying to be simplistic. Maybe they retired from the war and, you know, why would you use extra characters? Um, <laughs> but that resurfaced when Microsoft Word introduced Spellcheck um, because Spellcheck wouldn't acknowledge anti-venom without the dash. And so, and so that actually caused a little bit of a resurgence of the archaic spelling. But realistically, when you look at um, Google Trends, um, search patterns within Google Trends, the entire world uses anti-venom. Um, the U.S. is the only place really where anybody uses anti-venine. And funnily enough, Canada actually uses anti-venom with the dash. But yeah, anti-venom is the most common, common phrase. Common okay, phrase. so let's just decide now we're using anti-venom. Concurred. Okay, done. Done, indeed. <laughs> okay. Okay, so anti-venom is the new word. We got that down. So, Dexter, tell us why are snakes important for the environment? How do they benefit people? That's a really great question. So, snakes do a variety of things that help support the ecosystem as a whole. You know, like we talked about water snakes and other things can eat sick and and kind of injured animals to keep the populations as a whole healthier. Further than that, um, they generally, you know, help to keep rodent populations down, which prevents rodents overfeeding on plants and causing, uh, you know, an ecosystem collapse because suddenly there's no, there's no good plants there that other things need um, to live on too. Obviously, rodents also have great potential for property damage, eating wiring and everything else in your house, and tremendous impacts on crops, both pre and post harvest. Um, so that's one really important thing that snakes do to help out people and the environment. Going further, they also have a tremendous impact on keeping tick um, populations down. What? Yeah. So some really cool research that came out of the, the University of Maryland a few years ago is they just looked at timber rattlesnakes in three or four different places around um, the Eastern US. And throughout their research, they actually concluded that per animal, each rattlesnake could consume between 2,500 and 4,500 ticks every year. Wow. Because those are animals, those those ticks, you know, are also on the rodents that, that the snakes are eating. So they're just kind of bycatch. <laughs> but also, that's another important thing of keeping rodent populations down is a lot of ticks, you know, spend their their nymph stage of their life when they're they're young feeding and growing up in rodent dens. And so the less rodents you have, 
obviously the less the ticks can reproduce as well. Um, so that's really important. And, you know, think that was just, they looked at one species that can have some pretty good population densities where, you know, the habitat's good and where they haven't been horribly persecuted by humans. But overall, they're, they're relatively rare in a lot of their, uh, a lot of their range throughout the country. Dude. So that, that's up to 4,500 ticks per semi-rare rattlesnake per year. And if you think that, you know, take that out through king snakes and through rat snakes, uh, every snake that, that eats rodents also, in theory, may be able to have an impact similar to that or potentially even greater. Because some, you know, some timber rattlesnakes maybe only eat twice a year. They'll have a, a nice squirrel or something like that in the spring or a rabbit. Uh, and then again, like in late summer or fall, and that, that tides them over for the entire year. So, you know, things that are far more active maybe eating more and may even have a greater impact than that. I'm about to go make a brush pile outside my house. <laughs> Just more snakes because we have a lot of ticks up here. Right. That's amazing. I, I am really glad that you explained that they eat the ticks as like a bycatch almost thing because mm-hmm. when you said that they help take out that many ticks, I was imagining snakes going around and just – Slurping up little ticks on all these little plants. And I was like, oh, my God, I love them. Yes, just like boba balls. (laughs) Like little gummy bears. To my knowledge, they don't have enough lip function to use a straw. (laughs) Okay. I was wondering. Um, That's awesome. Um, but even beyond that, uh, so that's just all stuff that they do in the ecosystem. Even beyond that, though, especially venoms, um, snakes have a tremendous impact on everybody's life in the country, even if you don't like live out in the country where ticks are a problem or where mice are a problem. I mean, I guess if you live in the city, mice are a problem, but you don't have snakes. Um, So a lot of venomous snake, a lot of snake venoms, uh, I guess is the easiest way to say that, are used in healthcare. Um, so like copperheads, which as as a lot of people know, are one of the most common snakes, well, one of the most common snakes in the eastern United States. Their their venom, uh, some compounds in their venom were studied and have actually been used to synthesize what's called contortrostatin, which is a cancer treatment that is really widely used to treat breast and ovarian cancer these days. Um, it's one of the most common treatments. And I think it's also used in other types of cancers, but I'm not positive. So I'm not, I'm not going to insinuate anything more than that. But that's really cool. Tree vipers from Asia, um, Wagler's tree vipers, um, which are beautiful snakes, their venom, uh, some compounds in their venom have been synthesized and studied. That's um, actually been used as a new type of blood thinner that possibly can help with heart attacks um, because it, it enhances the flow, but the flow of the blood around blockages and everything. But at the same time, um, other little aspects of the, that compound prevent just random bleed outs from other injuries and, and stuff like that. So, so that's another snake venom that's, that's being really helpful because it, um, it led to some really cool medical discoveries to help with heart attacks. And ACE inhibitors, uh, which a lot of people are familiar with because of blood pressure and it's treated with heart failure and oftentimes also used after heart attacks, um, first arose by studying Brazilian viper venom, um, sea snake venom, um, the neurotoxin in it that, that, that attacks your nervous system or the nervous system of their prey, in theory, 
is actually being looked at as a, a probable treatment for Alzheimer's and maybe Parkinson's. Um, same with, I think some Cobra venoms have been started to look at for things like that. Even beyond that, Gila monsters, which are a, a venomous lizard from the desert Southwest in Mexico, um, their venom is used uh, in diabetes treatment, you know, in poisons from tropical frogs and toxic compounds from, from various plants in the tropics and elsewhere um, are also just, you know, part of a, a bigger spinoff of, of why humans need nature and to conserve nature. Aspirin first arose from compounds in willow bark, for instance. So that's a bit far afield from why snakes are important to people, but that's why nature is important to people. Because science wouldn't be nearly as far, medical science wouldn't be nearly as far as it is today without access to the thousands of species across the planet that have toxic compounds in them. But part of the compound can be kind of manipulated and wielded for medical good. Um, so yeah, that's just a bit of a diatribe of, of preserve nature, protect it wherever you can. Very well said, Dexter. And I think we should probably, we could include some links in the show notes to let people research some of these things more. I had no idea about any of this. So super cool. I really like it. And, and I'm by no means an expert on this. I've got some really cool friends, um, the university of Northern Colorado that their whole life is, is studying venoms and, and mostly it's how, it's how the venoms work with, you know, in ecology with like predator prey interactions, but they also are some of the leaders in, in helping to identify compounds that may be used medically um, and collaborating and stuff. So by all means, I, I'm, I'm, I'm no expert on this, but it's super cool that even just a quick Googling can show some of those things pretty easily. I think now is the time for a, an Aldo Leopold quote, which I'll probably botch. But the the first, and help me out here, guys, it's the first sign of intelligent tinkering is to not get rid of any of the <laughs> the cogs. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? That quote? Nobody? No. Not Dang yet. Um, however, with the power let's of Google it. the Google. <laughs> Um, with the power of the Googles, I have found that, uh, to keep every cog in wheel is the first precaution of intelligent tinkering. There you go. So we don't want to get rid of any of these snakes. We want to protect them all because we don't know what would happen if we lost one, not only for their ecosystem value, but as Dexter mentioned, all these medical advancements. So yay for snakes. Hear, hear. <laughs> and okay. actually even... Beyond that, um, like snake biology and stuff, a friend of mine uh, who's a fantastic scientist and a, a great gentleman, um, Dr. David Pinning from Missouri Southwestern State University in Joplin, is a, a is basically the we, the leading world expert on reptile kinetics. So the study of like how their bodies work, like human kinetics is usually you know how your muscles work in sports and everything else that goes along with it. He studies strike speeds and constriction pressures and also in bite pressures and stuff throughout throughout um, all of the reptiles and his knowledge of how of looking into how different constrictions pressures and and other just pressures applied to different animal body styles actually just lent him to be uh, an expert witness in the uh, the Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis talking about how appropriate pressure at the neck and stuff like that could cause heart failure 
and everything else. So, you know, wow. studying snake science and, and constriction and everything else helped lead to that conviction and, and to justice. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's a Super sobering cool. thought. Wow. It is very sobering. Um, okay. So we've, we're talking about the importance and the need to conserve not only snakes, but nature itself. Dexter, can you talk a bit about what are some of the threats that snakes are facing today? Like snake fungal disease, people just straight up hating on them, habitat destruction, and if if climate change is going to affect their populations. Yeah, certainly I think that those four are, are you know, pretty big, are, are probably the big players. Um, certainly road mortality um, also is, is an important factor. But yeah, so just kind of going down that list that you just read off, snake fungal disease is a, a soil fungus infection, basically, that, that, you know, probably has been around for a long, long time. Ophidiomyces is the uh, the genus of that that fungus, and it's likely that there's several species throughout throughout the world. There's just a, a really low grade little fungus that lives in the soil that infects snakes, and usually it's relatively harmless, relatively so. Like it would cause blisters and and some weird wounds and stuff like that, but oftentimes things could heal really easily. And then oh maybe. 10 or 15 years ago, I think. I don't know the exact timeline. It became a really big problem in the Southeast United States for, for some reason. Uh, and I don't know why, but you know, people who had been studying snake populations in the same spots for, for decades started noticing large die-offs and large illnesses and stuff like that. And you know, it, it drastically affected snake populations for quite a long time. Um, and it's been observed throughout most of the Eastern US now having these large infections. And, and I don't know whether it's different species were transported on like field gear or in dirt or something across the country. So they, they hybridized and became more virulent or if climate change, things getting warmer and wetter in the, the Southeastern United States just allowed them you know, to become their, their optimal fungal selves. Uh, I don't know. I don't know at all what what caused that change, um, but it seemed like there was suddenly a drastic increase in uh, how dangerous it was to snakes. Um, and some, you know, some snakes could could take a year or two and fight it and recover and still go along like a champ. Some of them just had internal um, issues that they couldn't overcome and ended up dying. Some of them just had severe necrosis of like the head where like a third of the skull would just rot away. And of course, you know, it's hard for a snake to survive that. So that's just something that, you know, I'm not an expert in it by any means. Um, so I don't know everything about it, but it's, it's something that has been a, a tremendous hurdle to overcome, uh, especially in the Eastern United States for the last decade or so. I think I recall seeing that some populations were starting to recover, you know, like, just some of the individuals didn't have the right immune system to fight it. And now the ones that did have better immune systems, um, you know, are, are doing better. Um, I don't know exactly how all of that fits together. Um, but that's, you know, kind of a, an unprofessional synopsis of snake fungal disease. People hating, of course, you know, as we've been talking about a lot, um, there's, it's, it's really easy for people who aren't familiar with snakes to misidentify them, especially like 
when you're already really nervous or, or flat out afraid or phobic of the snakes, you don't want to get close enough to see defining details. If you are close enough, you're usually kind of jittery and your mind's going a thousand miles a minute, you know, and, and, and people are, are just cautious um, or, or afraid. And so they persecute snakes um, unjustly a lot of the time. You know, that's, that's a big, big issue. Uh, of course, you know, one person killing one snake here and there, it takes a while to add up, but it can add up. Um, the bigger thing is, you know, people unjustly thinking that venomous snakes are really going to be dangerous to livestock or something and just going out and, and there, you know, there's reports of people just like putting dynamite in, in rattlesnake dens and blowing it up and killing a couple hundred snakes, you know, in five minutes. And that wipes out an entire local population or dumping gasoline down it. That's something else that's common. It used to be common, of course, that also kills everything else around it and it sterilizes the soil and, and you know, yeah. So those aren't, aren't good things either. Um, habitat destruction is a big thing, um, especially in urban area. In Kansas, you know, especially around the Kansas City area where there's a lot of rapid expansion, there's some uh, small snakes like the, the smooth earth snake and the red-bellied snake that most of their population in Kansas is kind of up in that area. And so the more there's urbanization and the more that hillsides and, and forests are being bulldozed and turned into parking lots and strip malls, the less habitat they have. And so that's uh, a really critical thing. You know, you can't live where you can't live. And of course, climate change, again, uh, it may not affect some things, but there's a lot of snakes that um, whether they're in the mountains and they, they have to hang out at a certain altitude because that's the the precipitation gradient and the temperatures that they're uh, adapted to or, you know, whether they're in forests that suddenly are going to get a lot drier and they're used to humidity. So they'll dry out more quickly. Maybe their eggs or their young will be more susceptible to desiccation. You know, it's a threat that climate change could have. Again, it being hotter, it makes infections more likely to run rampant. So yeah, all of those things are, um, are, are pretty significant threats to snakes these days. And, and also feral cats, you know, we've got so many feral cats that run around in the country. It's not uncommon to drive, you know, an hour down country roads and see four or five feral cats at least. And who knows that you, how many you missed. Um, and each one of those can potentially kill hundreds of snakes and songbirds and frogs and lizards and rodents and things like that every year. Um, then multiply that through the, the hundreds of thousands of cats that there are throughout the country. It really can have a large additive effect. So if everything Dexter just said has made you feel really sad, um, go ahead and get onto that KHS Facebook page because the first step is learning. Learn your snakes, learn about their habitat, learn about their ecosystem, and then also maybe consider, like I mentioned earlier, that certified wildlife habitat. If you are living in one of those urbanized areas, um, trying to do a couple of things to rewild your space to help some of these snakes. Yeah, I yeah, love that. That's definitely um, good first steps to trying to be better stewards of the land. Yeah, and being those better stewards will not only help the snakes, but other wildlife as well. So keep that in mind. Right. Um, so I want to talk about one of my favorite things in the whole world, which is which are possums. <laughs> okay, I love possums. Uh, if you know me, you know that I love possums for a lot of reasons. We're probably going to have a whole episode about possums because I love them so much. <laughs> but they are like somewhat or mostly immune to a lot of snake venom. Dexter, could you talk about that a little bit? 
Um, I can talk about it a little bit. Again, this is outside of my my specialty, so uh, everything's going to be, um, you know, what I could find on the Google and and just yeah, what I've read. But so yeah, possums. I don't know if I would say they're immune. They probably are close to immune, uh, but they're definitely highly resistant to yeah, snake venoms. It's more like a tolerance. Yeah, yeah, they uh, yeah they have a really good tolerance. Um, <laughs> And, and so a really cool thing, you know, and everybody knows, maybe not, but, you know, possums are also Amazing. resistant to Lyme disease and, and a bunch <laughs> of other stuff because possums are just really weird and unique um, across North America um, throughout the, you know, the ecology of North America. In this instance, um, they actually have a protein compound in their blood that binds with toxins, especially snake venoms, um, because, you know, Possums are just down in the leaf litter, man, just cruising around trying to to find whatever they want to eat, whether it's, you know, like persimmons or grubs or, you know, small frogs and stuff like that. Uh, so they're down, they're down there with snakes. And it's likely that, you know, they get they get tagged by venomous snakes quite a bit. And so yeah, they they just they've developed over their their history. Uh, a good protein shield basically from the toxins that binds with the venom. Basically it just encapsulates um, and neutralizes the venom to keep it from attacking their cells. And, and there's some, some really cool research I found that one of the first studies that looked at this looked at two different snake species, the Western diamondback, which um, the Western diamondback rattlesnake, which, you know, we've talked about a little bit and are, are pretty common throughout the West and the desert Southwest you know, even up through Texas, and there's a couple populations in Arkansas and Oklahoma, uh, eastern Oklahoma. Um, they're common throughout western Oklahoma. So it looked at those because, of course, that's that's a really significant contributor to snake bites in the country. And then also Russell's vipers, which are by death toll the deadliest snake on the on the planet. Um, and it doesn't mean they're the most venomous; they're not the most potent. But they live in India, where, of course, there's a high concentration of people that are outside um, in nature, or working in fields, or whatever. And so, and their their venom is pretty potent. And so, they actually can claim. Um, I'm spitballing here, but I think something around ten thousand lives a year compared to the six a year that the United States averages in snake bite deaths. And so, the study looked at those and found that the the protein molecules from the possum blood neutralized both of those, even on a continent where they didn't, you know, live to adapt together. And then some preliminary research that I saw also suggested that it worked on, on species from Africa, where of course possums also aren't. And so that's something that's really, really cool to me is just that like, not only does it deal with the hemotoxic venom of North American pit vipers, but it potentially just runs the gambit and it's just like, oh, cool. There's a venom. I'm going to laugh at it. That's probably about as much as they laugh too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, which, what's even cooler is the researcher that was looking into that was able to encode E. coli, which is you know what we get sick off of that lives in chicken. They were able to code E. coli to produce the first several protein pairs of that chemical as a way to potentially start synthesizing it for humans. And, and I don't know, to me, that seems like it would be an inoculation, like a vaccine, but my also my, my understanding of that sort of science suggests that I'm probably interpreting it wrong. Um, I have no idea what that means, but it's just really cool that they were able to take this thing that usually makes us sick and basically train it 
to create this thing that prevents possums from from being envenomated or from dealing with venom. And it and it could potentially have some sort of health impact for humans in, in the future, which is just super cool. And I don't understand all of that science enough to say anything more about that. But it was just super cool. Yeah. Some more medical advancements. Mm-hmm. Go, go gadget nature. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to challenge you, Dexter. I want to know what snakes are doing in the winter. And I want to know it in two sentences or less and using a, a good vocabulary word. <laughs> Since you're a logophile. And we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to teach our listeners a common language in which we can discuss ecology. So, so hit us with a, like a cool biology word. Snakes in the wintertime are usually just hanging out below the frost line, just hibernating somewhere where they're not going to freeze and die. And whether that's rocky outcrops and crevices or down crayfish burrows, um, hanging out in the water level to where it won't freeze um, to regulate their body temperature. Yeah, they're basically just chilling and hibernating. um, Okay, hibernating. Yeah. There's your biology word. We'll, is we'll it, link to the definition. Is it true hibernation? That's what it's always called. I would have to recheck the definition on true hibernation to really get into like, uh, it checks all these boxes. But they're in hibernacula, right? Right. Which okay. is, yeah, just the name for their dens. Which is a cool word, mm-hmm. I have to say. Hibernacula or hibernaculum. I forget which one's the plural. Uh is plural. Um is singular. Okay. <laughs> Noted. Okay. I would like to thank Laura for challenging you. <laughs> that was a really good. <laughs> I really loved that. Um, but I have, we have a couple more questions we're going to ask you to wrap up this episode. And they're relatively short and sweet. The first one is, what is your favorite snake? My favorite snake? Oh, goodness gracious. Um, I love all snakes, especially whatever one I'm seeing in the moment. I'll usually say, oh, my gosh, this is my favorite. But usually usually what I I come back to is um, western worm snakes. They're a tiny little ground-dwelling fossorial um, snake that I grew up with in Missouri. It's what I oftentimes found under rocks in the backyard. Um, they're, they're a really dark, like beautiful slate gray on top. And then their belly is bright pink, um, kind of like salmon and, hmm. or somewhere between salmon and bubble gum. And they're just super cool. They're, they're unassuming. They're harmless. They have a really nifty little hard sort of spike almost on the, the tip of their tail that they can use to kind of drive into the ground as they're, they're moving along and it, and it gives them a little bit of extra pressure to push forward through stuff. And also if they have to turn around, like if they hit a dead end running into a rock or something, they can use that as an anchor to help pull their body back out. And when you catch one, of course they're tiny, they can't bite, they don't try to bite, but they'll, they'll like wiggle that, that, that little spike into your hand. And I mean, it just feels like, you know, you're, you're pushing a ballpoint pen against your skin Uh, but without all the pressure that, you know, a big human arm can provide. So it's harmless and it's just kind of cool and cute. Um, But yeah, they're my favorite, I think. Okay. So I Googled them and I'm low key crying because they are so stinking cute. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Western worm snakes. And we do have them um, throughout about the Eastern third of Kansas too in the woodlands. Mm. Okay. So I have to go East to find them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, hit us with your super cool snake story. A a super cool snake story that I love to tell 
is, you know, hearkening back to earlier in the in the podcast, I mentioned that um, Western Diamondbacks were were kind of more or less rediscovered at Canopolis Lake in in late 2016 by Paxson Hutto from Winfield. He was up there in November on a birthday camping trip or something and found some in a cave. And so in 2017, I was president of the Kansas Herp Society and uh, our fall field trip. So we do field trips every year to allow people to get out, to get out and about and see the nature that's in their backyard and stuff throughout the state. So our fall field trip that year was up at Canopolis to look for them. And I was hiking um, with a couple of high school teacher friends of mine and their students. And, and I'd been explaining, you know, this type of snake, probably you're going to be at the base of rocks or underneath rocks, underneath um, shrubs and stuff like that. So that it, they're, you know, just in dense vegetation where it's hard for things to get to them. They're safe. There's also probably a lot of rodents going around. And, and one of the high school students was super peppy and enthusiastic and she jumped ahead of me across this tiny little creek ravine and landed on a big rock near uh, a big rock face and immediately like shrieked. And it seemed like she moved so quickly. It seemed like she teleported behind me um, <laughs> and, and was telling me that there was a big snake there and, and, you know, it was rattlesnake. And, and, you know, I, I was like, well, how big was it? And like, how do you know it was rattlesnake? Of course it, it was huge. Um, you know, I think she said it was like seven feet long and it rattled. And so I'm like, oh, cool. And, you know, I set all the miscellaneous stuff out of my hands down and got, you know, a, a couple of snake hooks. And I, I went ahead and I'm wearing big, heavy leather boots and, and you know, loose fitting thick pants and stuff like that. Um, so I'm as well prepared as I can be. And I go forward. And sure enough, that I mean, I don't know that it was seven feet, but the snake was at least six feet long and, and as thick as my wrist. And I'm a, a, a pretty healthily sized guy. So it was a, a was definitely a girthy snake, and it was right there underneath some brush at the edge of the the cliff, and it was super cool. And since they're not naturally found there, I wanted to try to catch it. And we had you know buckets with scrun lids and and bags that were easy, um, bags that, that would be easy to kind of catch stuff. I wanted to try to catch it to take it out of the park because it would be safer for people. But the brush was too thick, and as I like I moved in and tried to. Um, the snake just like, it had been rattling, um, saying, Hey, I'm here. I don't like you being there. I'm nervous. And it came straight at me, but like it, its head wasn't off the ground. It, it wasn't trying to bite or anything. It just, you know, and, and of course I knew what I've explained earlier that sometimes they just are trying to get away by coming at you. Cause that's where they feel safe. And I could, I just had a feeling that it, you know, it wasn't being aggressive towards me. Um, its head was down and it was just going as quickly as it could. And sure enough, like my feet were planted right above the hole where it wanted to go. So this six foot long rattlesnake mm. that was big enough that if it bit me in that ro ro rugged area, it would it would be life threatening for me. Um, but it, it came at me and, you know, like we both were really tense, but also like not super aggressive. And and when it was coming at me, of course, I didn't try to catch it or anything. I just stood there with like my feet wide apart, being really calm. And it went right between my feet. Um, into the hole where it was at, uh, where it needed, where it knew it wanted to hide. And then, you know, we, we safely checked around the rest of the, the area right there to make sure there weren't any other ones. And, and it was like three feet down this, this pack rat hole, but we could still see it. Um, and it was coiled up, just, just hanging out, you know, keeping its distance and stuff. And so one by one, the high school students were able to come over and kind of get down after we made sure it was, it was safe and kind of look in with a flashlight and, and they all got to see it. And that was really cool. Wow. Um, and yeah, so 
that's one of my favorite stories, not only because it gave me a big adrenaline rush, which I usually don't get around snakes because um, I'm pretty calm, but also just because it showed such a cool behavior of, yeah, they're not out to get me. Even the snake that is widely villainized as as the most aggressive, dangerous snake on the continent, you know, it was, you know, as long as I am tall and probably weighed 15 pounds, you know, it just came right at me, but it, it didn't seem aggressive. And so I just stayed calm and it went straight between my legs into where it wanted to go for home. So I think that was it was really cool as as a you know a moral of the story sort of thing that they're not always out to get you. And it was just really fun and cool for me. Um, and we ended up seeing a couple more that day as well that weren't weren't that large. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Dexter, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and our listeners. I know that I've learned a lot. I hope all of our listeners have as well. What can people do to support the Herps of Kansas? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It's been really fun. And I actually learned a lot while while preparing for this. And so, you know, and e- the easiest things people can do to support the Herps of Kansas is, you know, not freak out. Just take a minute to sit and, and look at something um, and, you know, pay attention to what it's doing. If you can, take photographs from a safe distance on your phone and post them to that, that KHS Facebook page. Um, for IDs, you can also upload those to the the apps iNaturalist or Herp Mapper to help um, to help scientists get a better understanding of of where snakes are and when and and all sorts of stuff. Um, that citizen science is really cool and really important. If you like snakes, um, gently try to convince people that doesn't like snakes that they're okay. Of course, don't you know chase anybody around with snakes or anything like that. Um, don't try to spook them. Be be respectful of the boundaries and everything else, but but just try to advocate for them. And always just be aware of places where they might be and keep an eye out for them. Yeah, just do that. Um, joining KHS um, can help. We, we fund over $2,000 worth of research and scholarships every year um, in the state of Kansas for, for snakes and amphibians and reptiles. Um, and, you know, we, we try to disseminate a lot of information about them and stuff like that. So, um, all of those are just kind of, I think, really cool, really easy things to do um, to help snakes and wildlife in general out. And make sure you're wearing robust denim <laughs> and closed toe footwear. Yes. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you again, Dexter, so much for sharing your snake knowledge. Thank you to all of our listeners. Get out there, become friends with your friendly neighborhood snake, but, you know, keep a safe different distance, be respectful of them. Um, also side note, if anybody knows someone who knows some stuff about moss, send them my, my, my way, because I really want to have a moss episode ever since Dexter brought up moss way in the beginning. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Again, um, if you want to learn more about snakes, consider joining the Kansas Herpetological Society. They're super awesome for whatever reason. I'm not a member yet, but I'm going to go sign up. I think it's like 15 bucks a year to be a member. It's really awesome. Right. And you get to meet super cool people and, go on really awesome herping trips across the state. Like seriously, mm-hmm. why have I not signed up yet? What is wrong yeah. with me? Our, our next field trip is actually in Cali County on um, Mother's Day weekend. So yeah, you can get more details for that on our Facebook page as well. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank Great. you, Dexter. And thank, thank you, so Laura, much. for co-hosting with me. And uh, we'll yeah. see you next time, Flatlanders. Bye. 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 
Flatlander podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at KS Wildlife Fed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country.